Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath. The conditions in the environments where people live, learn, work, and play can affect a wide range of health, quality of life, and ultimately outcomes. In this episode of Trending Health, Vynamic's Cassandra Zuluaga and Dr. Charlotte Cudahy are joining us to discuss the critical importance of considering determinants of health. Dr. Cudahy is a UK public physician in training whose interest in social determinants began during her medical training in Glasgow, Scotland and Savannah, Georgia. From seeing the inequalities in healthcare and wider determinants her patients faced. She completed a master's in public health at Harvard University, focusing on social and behavioral determinants of health. She's a Kennedy Scholar and Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management Fellow. She has a special interest in disability rights and inclusion, founding the Disabled Access Glasgow social media platform and serving as a member of the Disabled Doctors Network. Dr. Cuddy, thanks for joining us today on Trending Health, and I am really looking forward to having this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to be here. So it's very clear, just given the bio that I read and some of the things that I've learned, that you have a real passion for pursuing some very meaningful work in this space. Before we start to really talk about the issues at play here, I'd love to hear more about what ignited this purposeful pursuit around addressing social determinants of health for you? Yeah, thank you. So I think like many people in healthcare, I went into it with this sort of noble and slightly naive aim of helping others. You know, in the UK, we start medical school young. So I went to medical school at 17. And this idea around the wider aspects of health really didn't hit me until um, a fairly intensive few days when I was in Savannah, Georgia. So I had been fortunate enough to win a scholarship to spend a summer working in the hospital setting down in Savannah. And this was pre-Obamacare and I was split between public and private. And I had this one day where I was in the morning in the private sector doing these very, at the time, very advanced retinal scans on these 90 year olds with no eye problems. And then in the afternoon, the attending I was with and I went down to a free clinic where we were looking after people without health insurance who were blind, who had a treatable eye disease, but hadn't received treatment earlier because they couldn't afford it. And I went home from that to the motel where I was living and was trying to put it out of my head. And this person approached me and they asked for money because they had lost their job. They were living at the motel. They were asking whether I could put up enough money for them to stay another night. And this was back in the days when when the student didn't have a lot of cash and I felt really, really powerless. And it was probably the closest I'd come to anyone being that in that sort of position. But I have to say, I somewhat put it out of my head when I came back to Britain and thought, well, we have the NHS. We don't have any of those problems. And then when I was working clinically, more and more, I started seeing in my practice that I was working on wards with people having terrible breathing problems and dying from lung disease because they'd been exposed to asbestos in the shipyards of Glasgow or 
when I was working in primary care, there were people coming in with depression and stress and anxiety because they were really low paid or they had insecure jobs and they lived in housing that was damp and cold. And in Scotland, that's quite common. And more and more, I this quote was going round in my head that I'd heard from this really eminent speaker called Michael Marmot that I felt like I was fixing people up and sending them back to the situations that had made them sick. And it just seemed really like I wasn't doing what I'd gotten into medicine to do. And then the third strand was a more personal one in that not long after I was in medical school, I developed really significant health problems, had to have a couple of surgeries, finished out medical school on crutches, um, ended up having to work as a junior physician using a wheelchair. And around that time, I met a girl at my physiotherapist who had the same condition, going through the same things in life. But our lives just completely diverged. I had great occupational health through my job. I had sick pay. I come from a family with income where if I needed taxis, I could get taxis. And I just watched as she ends up leaving the workforce and it affected her, her income, her home and the, the opportunity she had. And I just thought there's so much more to people's health and well-being than what I had on my prescription pad or in the doctor's office. And that's what really then made me pivot and go into public health as a career. That is, to me, that's such a compelling story and, and obviously can feel the personal connection mm -hmm. to it. So thank you for sharing that with us. You know, you mentioned that your realization came about in, in determining that you were sending people back to situations that made them sick to begin with. And a large and compelling body of evidence over the, the last decade that has been accumulated really reveals a powerful role that these social factors that you mentioned, apart from medical care, shape a wide range of health indicators, such as settings and, and the things that, that that does to populations. As we start to talk about social determinants, and I touched on a couple of them at the beginning of this, but I'm wondering, can you expand on how you would define social determinants of health and why these determinants play such a critically important role in how we actually think about health care? I really like the concept of the social determinants of health, but I don't like the terminology. I think it sounds dry and hard to get your head around, whereas actually this is a really intuitive idea. And I think the WHO have really tried to make it more accessible. So I like their definition, which is basically the idea that the conditions in which we all are born, grow, work, live and age, and the, the forces that shape them, so the politics, the economics, they are what shape our health. And I think that's really intuitive. You know, I think most people would say that if we look at an extreme example of conflict zones or disaster areas, we recognize that that's going to influence people's health. But actually, even in much less extreme situations, like you mentioned in the introduction, we think that these factors account for about a third to a half of our overall health and well-being. And these are things like the quality of our home, whether we have access to clean and safe food and water that's healthy and nutritional, our income. And the reason I think they're so important is because they hit us at multiple points. If we take the example of a 
kid who's born today. So we know that a child who's born today, the environment their mother's in, can shape that child's health through the nutrition they get in the womb. And what we actually know from studies is that that in the womb nutrition, it almost programs some aspects of that child's biology for life, and it can make them more likely to have heart disease and strokes in the future. So your social determinants can affect your vulnerabilities for disease. And then when you grow up, they can go on and they can affect your exposures to disease, as we might call them. So that's things like we know if we continue that stroke idea, we're increasingly recognizing the importance of air pollution in rear risk of stroke. And so we know that some people, if they live closer to major roadways or if they have to have open fires in their homes, they're more exposed to that smoke. They might be more at risk of stroke. And then it goes right through. Of course, like you said, access to healthcare is, a, is still a part of this piece. And we know that that's not even for people even within the NHS. And then the final thing is the social determinants hit you with the consequences. So my job is largely about talking, reading, writing. If I had a stroke and I took out my non-dominant arm or leg, I could probably continue to work. But the consequences for me, if I was in a more physical job, the same stroke might leave me unable to do my work. And the impact of that on my health, my income, and all those other determinants would be so much greater. So I really think they matter because they're so they're so broad and they're so pervasive across our lives. Charlotte, you brought up some really powerful examples that influenced your outlook and desire to focus on social determinants of health. The recent COVID-19 pandemic helped shine a light on how people experience healthcare differently based on their social influences. How did this time during the pandemic help you learn a bit more about the individual experience and how it affects everybody's health outcomes? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really great question. I think shining light is such a, a good way to put it. I think the COVID pandemic really just magnified everything that we'd known about social determinants of health before. And I think at this point, it's probably worth mentioning something that often goes with social determinants, which is the idea of inequalities. And the idea that the reason social determinants of health are important, and we talk about them right, is because everyone doesn't have the same. And the idea with inequalities is that there's differences between what we've all got that are not fair and not just. And that's, that's why this is important to think about. And so in terms of the pandemic, there was quite a few different ways we saw this. In the early days, I was involved in what they call contact tracing. So finding the people who had been diagnosed with COVID and then finding those they might have been in contact with. Um, and through that experience and through what we know from um, studies that have been done since, we saw that COVID just, it, it just got more people. More people were infected if they were in those frontline jobs. And healthcare is an obvious one and it had a big impact on NHS staff, but also care home staff. And perhaps people we might think a bit less about I've had a lot of involvement with people who worked in frontline food processing. You know, the, the absolutely necessary functions we needed to keep people with all the comforts that we've grown to expect. And so people were more exposed in that sense. Or there was the, it really shone a light on people who were living in cramped homes. You know, when we were in those early months, we were saying to people, well, if you have COVID, you stay in your bedroom and you use a bathroom that's separate to everyone else. Well, 
a lot of people don't live in a situation where they have their own home, their own bedroom, their own bathroom. People I was working with were in a situation where through poverty and their working environments, they were doing hot bedding. So you would have one worker who would sleep in the bed through the night, then they would get up and go to work. And then someone from a night shift would come back, sleep in their bed through the day. And so the same bed would be in use 24 seven. And so the, the impact of that and their likelihood of getting ill is huge. Another thing we saw was around people's attitudes to coming forward for healthcare. And I think that's been there, but I think it made it really clear that I live in my bubble and my bubble is medical scientific. But I think the pandemic really showed that that's not, that's not everyone's bubble. And for many people, they were afraid to come forward for healthcare when they were sick. There was this idea that it was a new disease and maybe as an infectious person, they would be you know, hidden away or locked away or punished in some way. I had a lot of contact with people who are here on visas and temporary arrangements who were concerned that if they came forward, that might affect their visa status or that might be questioned in some way or that we would stop them from working and actually they needed that job. They didn't have the sick pay. So it really reminded us of how many barriers there are for people who come forward for healthcare. And those barriers are there all the time, but we maybe just weren't as mindful of them before. You brought up again in terms of somebody's economic position, how they work, what environment they work in, what environment they live in, and how that can have such a profound impact on an individual's health or if they do get ill, you know, the outcome of that illness. I think in terms of looking ahead and what we have on the horizon, the UK, like many countries, is grappling with a cost of living crisis, which is predicted to worsen over the coming months. Based on your experience, how do you think this will affect uh, health outcomes? And what can providers do to further help patients and prepare themselves? I really like that you ended that with that idea of preparing for the future. Um, in public health, one of the things we bang on about is prevention as veteran cure. And so I think it's really important to be thinking ahead about this. We do know that there's a lot of people right now who are worried about this. A recent government survey has found that more than half of people are worried that there will be a negative effect on their health from the cost of living crisis. And that seems to be bottoming out as being to do with heating and food and transport not surprisingly given what we know about where we're seeing the greatest rises in prices from my colleagues and from people working on the front lines I think some of the things will be quite predictable so we're seeing we know that a lot of breathing problems can get worse in damp cold homes um, and there's concerns that we're going to see more of those there's some conditions uh, for some people that they need heat. So particularly people who have issues with circulation and ulcers of their, their hands, their feet, they can be worse in the cold. And then I think, of course, there's that broader thing that I don't think we can underestimate of the, the impact of that stress of living hand to mouth and just that ongoing sense of, will I have enough money to feed myself, feed my family, keep my home? Will I have to choose between heating and eating? And that stress in itself is a health issue, but also we know that chronic stress isn't good for people's longer term health and is associated with a range of other problems. And then, of course, healthcare, we keep coming back to money. The NHS is free at the point of access, which is, is great, but there are still costs to being a patient. You know, we have to get to care, we have to take time off, 
often our relatives spend long times in hospitals and you know they have to buy things to sustain them while they're there and at the the really severe end of this we know that in times of extreme weather we've seen in the past in cold cold weather the, the most vulnerable so the the older the people with health problems we see sadly a peak in deaths when we have cold weather and as providers one of the things we would say to people is make sure that your homes have a good temperature and in fact for older adults we we have a lower threshold for turning the heating on and we'd advise them to turn it on sooner and I think the concern is that although we might say that as providers will our patients feel that that's something they can do and so will that have an effect on on people's risk of dying from cold and that's that's something I know a lot of areas are working on at the moment. I think the example you mentioned there Charlotte about telling your patients something that that could help them but whether or not they have the ability and access to be able to help themselves based on your medical advice. I think that's a, a really profound example of how, um, based on the reality you live in, your, your experience is different. Building on that in terms of, you know, you mentioned before about the bubble that you're in and the reality of your experience. There are clear examples of inequality in terms of how people live their lives and the access they have to to healthcare and their health outcomes. Could you offer a bit more of a perspective around you know, the idea of social justice and how it intertwines with, with medical care and ultimately these social determinants that we've mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a something I've come to more recently in my career. So I'm working currently with a few different universities around incorporating more of this social justice into medical education and at its simplest it is this idea of acknowledging and recognizing exactly what you said that there are inequalities in many of the societies that we live and operate in and that means some people have less advantages or more disadvantages depending on how you want to look at it in their life opportunities and their life resources what we're doing about that from a medical education perspective is just really calling that out so for example we're calling out the racism that has been sadly a theme in much of medical practice and medical research so calling that out from the past not to sort of wring our hands and feel powerless about it but to acknowledge it and recognize its influence in the present day because the idea is that until we recognize it's influence in the present day we can't address that so what I mean by that is things like recognizing historical racism in medical research and how that might have affected trust in certain communities like looping back to the what the pandemic taught us we saw that there were there were some groups from some ethnic backgrounds that were less likely to come forward for vaccination and on some channels you saw that reported with hand-wringing of oh these people don't want vaccines but actually, when you look into the history of that for those groups, in many ways, that was a really sensible and reasonable response to their shared cultural memory of discrimination and being treated in a negative way by us as health professionals. And so actually a much more effective response, which has been done in lots of areas, is working with health professionals, doctors, leaders of those communities building trust and their support and getting them to advocate as trusted people from that community to try and rebuild that trust. And so I think that's why social justice is so important because we need to 
as health professionals, really examine these biases we have in our practice and, and really own them, but own them from a place of then, okay, how do we move forwards and how do we build on this and how do we recognize that and take it forward with our patients with humility? Charlotte, you mentioned factors about environment and some of the factors aligned with racism and sexism and other mm -hmm. forms of discrimination. I would love to hear your perspective. When we think about how to address this, how can healthcare providers have a more meaningful impact in addressing what's going on around determinants of health? The first step for me is that level of awareness. There's this concept called unconscious incompetence and the idea is that you move from unconscious incompetence to at least being consciously incompetent and I think for many of us that's a goal our first goal is to acknowledge that we're we're maybe not there yet we haven't perfected our practice in terms of being a bit more positive about things we can do there's things we can do at the individual patient level in terms of taking a step back in a situation and thinking about whether some of these issues we mentioned around gender, sexuality, gender identities, race might be influencing a consultation, either from us as providers or for our patients, thinking what, what baggage either of us might be bringing into the room, what biases, and whether we can do anything to counteract them. There's also something really important beyond the provider level at the more system level within that provider organization around how we signpost and we signal to these different marginalized groups that this is a process we're trying to do. Some of the things we've seen in the NHS are the rainbow lanyards, which are a way of indicating to people that those who wear them have undergone a degree of training around LGBT matters. And that if someone wishes to speak or disclose an LGBT identity to that person, they can be assured of a welcoming, inclusive response. There's other things like what an initiative called Pride in Practice, which is again a similar idea that everybody in a primary care setting from the reception staff to the medical and nursing staff have undergone training around LGBTQ issues and that they will be sensitive and respectful of that where possible. Beyond the training itself, I think signaling that training and signposting that's really important and I know that people from those communities, there's whole discussion boards online where they will, in a local area, say, oh, well, you should go to this practice because they've done pride in practice and you, you know, they're, they're the good guys. The, the third strand, which is around where providers are comfortable with it and where organisations can, being visible about the diversity within their own staff. Obviously, some diversity is in itself visible, but it's not always. And if if it's appropriate and if the person feels comfortable in doing that, having people from different minority backgrounds in roles that are visible and, and showing that particularly senior roles, I think, is a really good way of demonstrating to patients who are coming that we don't just pay lip service to these values. We respect these attributes in our colleagues as well as in our patient population. It's so interesting to me because when I think about these factors that drive the utilization of healthcare services, they feel so much greater than the healthcare industry alone, right? There's so yeah. many societal elements and public issues that individuals face. 
And I think about as populations become more diverse and oftentimes at greater risk for poor health outcomes due to the impact of these determinants not being addressed, there feels like there's such a growing need to coordinate services across the care continuum that go beyond the, the provider, that almost lift up a layer to the system itself and how the healthcare system kind of interacts with education system and other systems that make a country go. And knowing that that is such a, a big undertaking, it can be daunting in some ways. I'm wondering if, if you think about it from a, above the provider level, but at a healthcare system level, what do you think are some of the things that can be done more immediately to try to address determinants of health within the healthcare system, knowing that at some point it has to be connected elsewhere? This is one of the things I'm always really keen to talk about because I, I think most providers come to this with a recognition of the importance of social determinants of health and a wish to do more, quickly followed by a sense of defeat at the scale of the problem, as you outlined. But I think there are things we can do. A great example from when I was working back in Scotland, we had the National Children's Hospital was based in Glasgow and people had to travel from all over and it was difficult and often when your child is very sick it's a time of great financial hardship and one of the things the healthcare system did was say okay we will have a hub in our building where we work with our partners in local government to try and find you the financial aid you're eligible for and that's right here and it's open late and you can come down between your child when your child's gone for a test or something and you can come down and they secured, for almost 500 families over the course of a year, they secured on average about £7,000 per household, which makes a massive difference. And I think it's a really good concrete example of where we as providers can work with others, because as you said, this is too big a problem to shoulder on our own. I think for individual providers, it's about being aware of those services that are right there and linking in with them and linking people in with the benefits support and care navigators or social prescribing which is increasingly something that's done within the NHS and I think we have a really key role in it because although there are organizations that do it often those who need it the most may not be so great with computers they may find the long forms can be difficult just as a, a side note but I think it's really important the average reading age of someone in the UK is eight years old so that's the, the level of reading we expect of an eight-year-old child. And if we think of many of the forms, we need to access these supports. You need to be a heck of a lot more advanced to navigate them. We almost need the level of a postdoctoral degree. And so we have a really useful role in supporting that. The other thing I think at the healthcare provider more system level we can do is the NHS is a huge employer. We can really leverage that to the advantage of the communities we're in. And so if we think there's already trusts that are signed up to what's called a real living wage scheme, uh, particularly in Birmingham and Sandwell, they've guaranteed that they will be living wage employers. And so for all their employees, that's securing them as having a good income, but also the spillover of their households and what that contributes to the local area. There's this idea in the NHS long-term plan of hospitals as what are called anchor institutions. They're often the biggest employer in the region. And many hospitals in the UK have signed up to contracts and agreements whereby they pledge a certain proportion of their revenue will be 
driven through local businesses, so local caterers, local transport companies. And that's a really concrete way of keeping that money locally and having an action on the wider determinants, but from within a sphere that maybe feels more comfortable to them. Do you have any call to action or anything that you'd like to lay down for the healthcare system as a whole about the need to really not only talk about this, but start to really do more about this? Like I said before, I think often in these discussions, what I always find frustrating was we would all wring our hands about, isn't this terrible, but never offer any solutions. And I really dislike that mindset. I think the message I would like people to take away is that yes, social determinants of health are important, but there is something that we can all do at whatever level of the system we're in. And so if you are a provider and you are focused on getting through the long list of patients you have ahead of you, then and you feel you can start nowhere else, just start by acknowledging that this might be affecting the care of the person in front of you and it might be affecting how they can respond to your advice, why they've come through the door and how they're going to feel when they leave. And even just say that to them and just acknowledge that in that space. If you want to take it the next step and link them with other services who can support them, then that's great and that's even better. And if you're at that higher level where you have you know, responsibilities for hiring, purchasing or setting policy, then, then great. And if you can be mindful of these determinants when you're leveraging that power you have, then fantastic. But I think at any level, we can each of us do something to try and address social determinants of health so that our patients can get the most from the healthcare we do provide for them. Well, undoubtedly, this has been a very compelling conversation on a topic that is, you know, I think very global. And I think apart from Medicare, just having a deeper insight, right, into how the environments where people live, work, and play can really shape their health in powerful ways. And I would like to thank you, Charlotte and Cassandra, for participating in such a compelling conversation today. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, subscribe to the Trending Health podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company with ongoing healthcare industry change. Please visit trendinghealth.com.